Well, I must say, I, the, the profile I did in 2001 of Ted Turner mm-hmm. was one of the more enthralling experiences I had. The news, 24 hours every day. The Cable News let's, Network. Let's get it out of the way. He was impulsive, and he sometimes made crazy decisions. Okay, good. You're probably with CBS, aren't you? There, there you go. The only person that raised his hand there was the president of Warner Brothers that makes that crummy program. But he was a man who... who had this idea to start CNN and backed it up. I'll never forget, for instance, in, in one of the things in the reporting I found was that in the, in the first Gulf War, when CNN had people in Baghdad and the United States was bombing, this is under the presidency of, of George H.W. Bush, the first Bush. And, and Tom Johnson, who was the president of CNN, went to Ted Turner and he said, Ted, Bernard Shaw and our team is there, and we should tell them to get out of the hotel and get out of the country because they may get killed. Here we go. I'm, I'm just looking out the window. The security people have forced us to close our windows, and uh, maybe it's for our own good, maybe not. We don't know whether these windows are going to shatter under blasts or not, but uh, there's some beautiful uh, tracer fire outside now. It's way up in the air. It's bright red. And Ted Turner looked at, at Tom Johnson, and he said, Bernard Shaw and these people are adults. They say they want to stay. It is their decision if they want to stay. And if you if you go back and think about that experience in, in the early 90s, that put CNN on the map. Because everyone, including the president of the United States, was watching CNN to find out what was happening in, in Baghdad and Iraq. And, and they, they had to watch CNN. And that became the birth, really, of the cable news empire. Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is Ken Aletta. Ken is one of the most accomplished writers, journalists in America, and he's been the longtime media critic for The New Yorker. So welcome, Ken. Thank you. Pleasure to be here, man. Ken, let, let's go back. You grew up in Coney Island. What was that like? You you were born just sort of in the middle of World War II and went to a great high school, Abraham Lincoln. What are your early memories of Coney Island that always has been such a magical place full of imagination? Well, my father had a little sporting goods store on Sewell Avenue, half a block from Nathan's, right across from the subway. And in those days, every subway in New York ended in Coney Island. And so on a Saturday or Sunday, a weekend in the summer, a million people each day streamed off the subway to go to Coney Island and the beaches and steeplechase and Raven Hall and all the amusements, and, and particularly the beaches on a, on a hot day. And it was amazing. And we, this little sporting store, Pat's Sporting Goods Store was called. I worked there starting at age nine. And we would sell suntan oil and hats and stuff and and and... And it was just an amazing place. And I, I would be allowed to get not work in order to go play baseball. I, I, I played a lot of baseball. And, but Coney Island was this magical place where everyone came. It was the Hamptons before the Hamptons was the Hamptons. And, but people, unlike the Hamptons, they didn't have houses there. They just took the subway there. And, and, they visited. and, and that point in time, there were no projects uh, then. In fact, when I was 13... 
we moved to a project on, on Surf Avenue and 29th Street, and it was called the Projects. And it was working class Mitchell Lama housing. And Projects didn't have a, a negative connotation the way it has today. And we were one of the first residents in the Projects on 29th Street. And what's happened to Coney Island today is actually a, a tale of the Projects because there are too many Projects. And the projects replaced the little mom pa stores and, and row houses where people sat, as Jane Jacobs once described it, providing eyes on the street and watching the neighborhood. And so people in these high rise watching television and crime grew and Coney Island went downhill. Yeah, it's hard to imagine today. We still go back every year. You remember the that we produced the Fourth of July uh, contest in Coney Island at Nathan's, and um, there's still a real feel of grandeur to it. And what was the parachute jump is still there. The cyclone is still there. The Wonder Wheel, of course. Um, and it's hard to imagine looking at it today that Coney Island was once the world's Monaco. Well, right behind the. Right behind the parachute jump is the pier on 17th Street. And it's, it's, it, there's a nameplate on the pier, and it says it's the Pat Oletta Pier. And that's my, fa- my father was Pat Oletta. Oh, I did and not know that. And he's a lifelong resident and, and, and devoted. He always would tell his sons and his daughter, Coney Island is coming back. And he was a believer, and he's a part of the Chamber of Commerce, and he's a very active member in the community. But and we didn't want to disabuse him, my brother and I, and sister and I, that Coney Island wasn't coming back, and and I fear it's not, but I wish it would. Well, ne- next time I'm there, I'll look for that plaque. That's fantastic. What a, what a wonderful memorial that is to your dad. Yeah, thank you. That's terrific. So you uh, moved on from Coney and went to uh, college upstate, uh, and then you got uh, a master's degree in poli sci from Syracuse. Did you know then that you wanted to be a writer? No, I was I was a, a, a semi juvenile delinquent at Abraham Lincoln High School, in in that I was I was a real screw up. I didn't pay attention to studies. I, I what I paid attention to was football and baseball, and and I stole a book of passes to get out of the building to hang out at the sweet shop across the street, and I was caught. And the dean of men, Doctor Orgel, was his name literally threw me out of high school in my junior year. So my parents got an appointment with Abraham Lass, who's the principal. I don't know how they got the appointment, but they did. And I went to see Mr. Lass. And and I'm sitting there in my T-shirt, rolled up you know, up, up on my, to my shoulders. And he says, tell me, Kenneth. And he called me Kenneth, which I, I bridled at. And, and he said, tell me, Kenneth, what do you like about Abraham Lincoln High School? And I said, well, Mr. Lass, what I like about Abraham like." Abraham Lincoln High School is baseball and football. He said, well, tell me, Kenneth, how do you suppose you're going to play baseball and football for Abraham Lincoln High School if you don't attend Abraham Lincoln High School? Duh. I mean, I had never thought of consequences. I mean, he had my attention. He said, now, let me tell you, I'll let you back in school, but here's the deal, Kenneth. You have no more free periods. Every free period you have, you come to my office, I'm in the outside of my office. I'm going to sit you down and you're going to start reading books. And I did Dickens, you know, Henry James. I mean, I started reading books and getting more serious and Abraham last became my lifelong mentor. And, and this great man, he saved my life. 
So one of the questions that we always ask is, what were the great minds that influenced you? It sounds like you just answered that question. I did. I yeah. did. I, he, and, and I was proud to speak at his funeral when he died many years later. But I would have lunch with him, you know, three, four times a year uh, when, I, when, when I came back to New York after graduate school and stuff. But he's a wonderful man who wrote 39 books, by the way. And wow. played the stride piano. Just a great man. Fantastic. And uh, then you ended up working on the presidential campaign of Bobby Kennedy. Is that right? I did in '68. Um, I was I was very committed to. I was anti-war, the Vietnam War. And when Kennedy ran for president, I supported him, and I went to work for him in that campaign. I have not been involved uh, intimately with the on the. Uh, Southeast Asia or Vietnam, uh, just to those two National Security Council meetings. Uh, I would think that that war will never be won militarily, but uh, where it's going to be won really is a political war. And what was that like that day when he tragically passed? Where were you and what do you remember from that day? Senator Kennedy has been shot. Is that possible? Is that possible? Is it possible, ladies and gentlemen? It is possible he has. Not only Senator Kennedy. Oh, my God. Senator Kennedy has been shot. And another man, a Kennedy campaign manager. I would, well, I'll tell you, we were, a group of us were at, at New York at a hotel, the Shelbourne Hotel. And we had had a meeting because he was coming from California. He just won California that night. And he was coming to New York for the New York primary. And so we had a meeting planning how we're going to try and win in New York. And we were worried we couldn't win. And at 3 a.m., we were awakened and said, turn on the television. And we turned on the television set and we saw that Bobby Kennedy had been assassinated. Oh, and my gosh. that's how I learned that, you know, what happened. And then I, you know, I, so we all were heart, we were all heartbroken and stuff. And and my job at the funeral, you started out at St. Patrick's Cathedral, where the funeral service was. And my job, I was, a, I was in my twenties. My job was to every ten minutes to move the VIPs who were standing around the coffin four at a time move them out and bring in a new group of four uh, VIPs. And I'll never forget Lee Razuel's husband, who was uh, came and he had this beautiful shirt and tie and, and, and it was a blue shirt. And, he, and it was very hot in St. Patrick's Cathedral. And I'm war- watching this, this prince and he suddenly, his, his blue shirt turns dark with perspiration. And his tie becomes loose, and, and it was just it was unbelievable. And then we got out to the air, and we all got on the train. And if you remember, the in '68, Bobby Kennedy's body was on the back of a train. And as you drove, as the train went to Washington for the funeral service, you saw thousands of people along the rail line just standing there to say goodbye to Bobby Kennedy. It was just one of the most amazing scenes I've ever witnessed in my life. You've had the opportunity to uh, be a sort of a front row observer to an awful lot of our popular culture the last, you know, four or five decades. It seems that back then, the political leaders were such inspirational 
such inspirational people that they had that power in life or in death to create a, a strong emotional reaction and connection. We seem to have lost that today to a large degree, or it certainly changed. Um, do you lament the loss of that? I do in, in part, but you know, if you go back and, and look at uh, Barack Obama, I think he had that. He inspired that feeling among a lot of people that he was a, a special person, an ethical man um, who could inspire you with his words and his writing and his family and his incorruptibility. So, I mean, there are, we have people who are, who are noble. And I mean, for instance, you look at, I know it drives Donald Trump, the president, crazy, but but Mitt Romney's vote in the impeachment, mm -hmm. that was an act of courage. And, mm -hmm. and so you look at that and you say, well, that was a pretty noble thing to witness. As, as I think, you know, Obama's presidency was in many, with whatever weaknesses he had, and he did have weaknesses, was a noble experience. So, you know, you don't find a lot of, I mean, Bobby Kennedy was unusual, and I think Martin Luther King was unusual and, and ennobling figures, but we still have them. Now, you've written about some of the most, you know, accomplished people in business, and I'm not done going back at your early career. I am fascinated by your tenure as the first director of OTB, so we're going to come back to that. <laughs> <laughs> but um, when you look at all the people that you've you know, written profiles or, in some cases, books about, people like Bill Gates and Reed Hastings and Rupert Murdoch, John Malone, when you just you know, lay awake and you look back and reflect – who who really got you? Who grabbed you and said, "Boy, you know that was really something." I, I learned a lot. I respect that person. Well, I must say, I, the, the profile I did in two thousand and one of Ted Turner mm -hmm. was one of the more enthralling experiences I had. I mean, in many ways, Turner was 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 a figure. I mean, he cheated on wives. He he he, you know, he he did. He was kind of, he was a womanizer. I mean, he was, he was impulsive and he sometimes made crazy decisions, but he was a man who, who had this idea to start CNN and backed it up. I'll, I'll never forget, for instance, in, in one of the things in the reporting I found was that in, in the first Gulf War, when CNN had people in Baghdad and the United States was bombing, this is under the presidency of, of George H.W. Bush, the first Bush. And, and Tom Johnson, who was the president of CNN, went to Ted Turner and he said, Ted, Bernard Shaw and our team is there and we should tell them to get out of the hotel and get out of the country because they may get killed. And Ted Turner looked at, at Tom Johnson and he said, Bernard Shaw and these people are adults. They say they want to stay. It is their decision if they want to stay. And if you if you go back and think about that experience in, in the early 90s, that put CNN on the map. Because everyone, including the president of the United States, was watching CNN to find out what was happening in, in Baghdad and Iraq. And, and they, they had to watch CNN. And that became the birth, really, of the cable news empire. So... 
I just there was just so many fascinating stories about Ted Turner in doing that, and you kind of pinch yourself as a reporter and you say, I can't believe someone is paying me to have such fun. For instance, Ted Turner was a young man who grew up at, at Brown University, and and his father, who had the ninth largest outdoor advertising business in in, in the world, billboards, etc. His father. At, leaves the breakfast table, a very gruff man, and he leaves the breakfast table and, and Ted and his mother at the breakfast table and goes upstairs and they hear a gunshot and they run upstairs and the father had put a bullet in his head and killed himself. And he left a note, which was on the, uh, on the bureau. And the note said, the note was addressed to his best friend. And he said, I want you to sell my business because my son, Ted, is not capable of running it. Well, that became a lifelong motivation for Ted Turner. And he and, and I remember walking down the street with him one time. And he had, if you went to Ted Turner's office, his office, like, like Trump's office, by the way, was full of magazine covers with Ted Turner on it. In Trump's case, it, it's Trump on it. I'm talking about the old Trump's office at Trump Tower. And and we're walking down the street. And it, it was, Ted was, uh, Turner was on the cover of a magazine. And he held it up. And he looked up at the sky and he said, is this enough for you, Dad? And, oh, my God. I mean, you just say, you know, <laughs> you know, I, Rosebud. Unbelievable. I got, I was, I agree with you about him. I was very lucky. Early in my career, I was in sports and I had written, do you remember the Goodwill Games? Sure. So I had written the bid for the 98 Goodwill Games that were held in New York, our bid won. Strong will and ill will on night 10 of Goodwill. And the key start of the Goodwill Games, as you recall, to bridge the Olympic boycotts between 80 when the games were in Moscow and the United States and our allies did not go, ironically, in terms of where history went, protesting the Soviet Union invasion of Afghanistan. That turned out well for them and for us. Right, right. And then we didn't, they didn't pay us back and didn't go in 84 to LA. So Ted Turner started the Goodwill Games to bridge. It had been 10 years in between East West Olympic competition going back to 76 in Montreal. The first Goodwill Games, 86 Moscow, 90 Seattle, 94 St. Petersburg, Russia, and 98 New York. And I spent the summer of 94. A lot of it with him and then his wife, Jane Fonda, um, in Russia. And he was the most charismatic guy to spend time with and went to all the events, was in the stands cheering for the American team, just like any other fan. He was a special guy. uh, Enthralling character to profile and spend time with. I mean, the only regret I have in all the time I spent with him when I profiled him was he said, you want to come this weekend and go hunting with me? And I, I, I'm sorry, but I have no interest in hunting at all. And I spent an enormous amount of time with Ted. But I'm, I, I regret that I didn't at least go that weekend. because you know you would have seen some other part of Ted, even though I saw many parts of Ted. Right. And, well, and, but yeah. I, I declined to go hunting with him. Yeah. I, I think I would have made the same call and had the same regret that you had. Well, if, if anybody wants yeah. to listen, I think that article was called The Lost Tycoon. Is that, is that still out there on the web? It is. 
It is, yeah. It actually won uh, it, it, that year was judged that won the National Back Magazine Award as the best profile. Right. So you've written a number of books, and I guess the first one that I recall was uh, Three Blind Mice: How the TV Networks Lost Their Way in the Early '90s. But um, you had written several before that, and many, many afterwards. Looking back at your body of work. If there was something that you're particularly proud of, what would that be? And if there was something you'd like another shot at, what would that be? Well, I like a lot of shot and, and shots at a lot of things. You 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 say, God, I wish I had spent a little more time in this story, or I, I wish I had not cut. You know, uh, here I am writing twenty thousand word pieces, so I'm and yet I'm complaining. I uh, like too much was cut. I mean, it's kind of insane, but. Um, I, I, the piece, I've written 12 books. The one I'm working on now is my 13th, but I, the book that was the hardest for me, and I think the most important, um, was a book called The Underclass. And it was a book about poverty in America. And, and it looked at the hardcore poor who oftentimes don't succeed even when they get a job and oftentimes they're stuck on welfare or in a life of crime. And I tried to understand that group of people. And there was at the time in the Johnson administration, this is we're talking about in the early eighties, late seventies and early eighties, Lyndon Johnson set up something called national support work program. And it was a program designed to attract to, to give training and jobs to diff, these the following categories of people, people who have just gotten out of prison, people who've been on welfare a long period of time, ex-drug addicts who may be current drug addicts, but they tried to screen them, and third or fourth, delinquent youths. So really a hardcore group to reach. And so I attended class the classes with these people. Most of them were fairly young, not not all, but, um, and they went to a class called life skills teaching and life skills was really teaching these people how to behave because, you know, they had, they had, they were not socialized. They, they, they grew up in, in single parent homes, often on welfare. They spent time in prison or on drugs and they didn't have, you know, they walked around, they went to a job interview with a boom box in their ear. And and so I'll never forget the first weekend when they got their check, I went to, there were 26 students in the class I was attending, and they went to a bank. And they walked in, the, these Afro-Americans and, and Hispanics, many of them with very large Afros, many of them looking very different than the people in the bank. So when they walked in, the people in the bank you could see were frightened. And yet what the people in the bank couldn't see that I saw, because I was with these people and befriended them, they were frightened. They had never been in a bank except to rob it. They didn't have a social security number. They didn't know what to do when you got up to the window. Hmm. They didn't know how to cash a check. And so for me, it was just an enthralling lesson about the importance of teaching people habits and behavior and, and, and understanding that even in support of work with all the help they were getting and mentoring and counseling, more than only a third of the people succeeded. And so then the question became, and I, I tried to ad- deal with this by telling the stories of these people. 
is, is a third success rate, is it success or is it failure? And generally speaking, we tend to think that it's a failure. 60, you need 65% or two-thirds to pass a test. And yet these people have really difficulties that are hard to overcome. And so your success rate is going to be less than 65%. But it was, it, for me, it was a fascinating experience. And if you have one thing that you'd like, a real, what, pick one that you'd say, I'd like another shot at it, what would that be? Well, you know, it, it's interesting. I had someone I respected, Bill Gates. Hello, I'm Bill Gates, chairman of Microsoft. Um, I had written about him um, and wrote a book. I covered the, uh, Gate, the Microsoft trial where Microsoft was judged to be a monopoly. And Bill Gates really, and, and I basically said that he could have avoided that trial and settled it, but he was a child. He was, he was, he couldn't believe the government was accusing him of acting like a monopolist. And, and because he got so proud and, and stubborn, he got into this trial, I thought, that he could have avoided. And I was, I was, I was harsh on Bill Gates. And the truth is, I respect Bill Gates. And I respect, even though I thought he was wrong in that case and wrote that, but I, I particularly admire and respect what he's done with his philanthropy. But so, but Bill Gates is so <laughs> angry with me for the for the book I wrote and the piece I wrote before the book in the New Yorker that, and you know, I, I wish. I, I mean, I don't take anything back that I wrote, but I, I I'd like to write that I respect the guy. Yeah, what well, he's done you, with yeah, his life. you certainly can't argue what he's done, you know, post his, you know, tenure at Microsoft. It's been incredible. Yeah. Interesting. Now, one of the things that I observed about you, you were very kind and uh, came to Advertising Week on, on many occasions. And I observed how, in a very old school fashion, you sat and listened and took notes. And that seems to be a diminishing art and when you write something it's you know real old-fashioned investigative journalism when you look at the current state of news and how the business of news has evolved uh, uh, do you worry about the uh, disappearance of good old-fashioned investigative journalism well it's not just investigative journalism it's listening what, I, what, what bothers me is that, I mean, to be a good reporter, you have to assume you don't know the answers to the questions you're asking. And therefore, in order to, know, to hear the answers, you've got to listen and you've got to ask questions. And I think increasingly, too many reporters don't ask questions, don't listen well, and pontificate. And, and they want to be on the cable talk shows and be, you know, be an no opinion maker. And I think that's death. I think the key to being a good listener and asking questions is retaining a measure of humility. And I think when you go and people ask you, well, what's, who's going to win this election? Or, or what do you think of that? You, inevitably, you lose humility. And you become, and you become a kind of semi-celebrity. And, and people know who you are. And you get invited to make paid speeches. 
and I think it, it contributes to a weakening of, of good journalism. Interesting take. Okay, can we talk a little about your current project? Sure. So you're writing a book now, and I'm, you were at the... I'm, I remember when I asked you to do the podcast, you said, I can't do it until the trial's over. Right. I, I'm doing a biography of Harvey Weinstein. I'm doing his entire life, not just what's happened in the last two years. But I did cover the trial, which obviously is the key part of that. He's now in prison. Uh, but I'm I'm going back to Queens in this reporting uh, where he grew up in Flushing and and tracing Harvey Weinstein as a boy. What was he like? Uh, then he goes to the University of Buffalo. He drops out in his junior year and becomes a concert promoter. And by the way, a very successful concert promoter. And then 10 years later, in 1979, he starts Miramax, the film company that put him on the map. And they created, you know, all these, you know, wonderful movies. And, and so I'm looking at what was his success? What was his failure? What was he good at? What was he not good at? And all through his public career, starting the movie business in 79, then selling Miramax to, to Walt Disney Company in 93, and keeping Miramax, and then getting a divorce from Disney in, in, in 2005, and starting the Weinstein Company, until he's exposed as a sexual pervert in, in 2017. I'm telling his story and how he abused women over the years, but also how he, the movies he made, the great movies he made, and what his talent was, and how he inspired actors and directors, and also abused them. So if you write a biography, you don't want to read a prosecution brief. You want to try and understand the person. And I'm trying to understand Harvey Weinstein flaws and and virtues he was he was one of those larger in life figures yeah he was i wrote a profile of him in 2002 for the new yorker which was 20,000 words long and he didn't like it because it portrayed him as a, a talented man it was called beauty and the beast but but also a bully and yeah. a, an abuser and i came real close to exposing him as a sexual predator uh, but i couldn't get any women to go on the record so you that knew this. You knew this back then, two thousand two. Yeah, I did. I had asked a, a colleague of mine who will be uh, on an upcoming uh, episode of Great Minds, Susie Essman, who's on Curb Your Enthusiasm, and Susie's right. a longtime stand-up. She's been in the stand-up community, you know, going back to Catch a Rising Star way back when. And I asked her, "Did everybody know about Louis C.K. and what he was doing?" And she said, "Yes, we all knew." And no one was surprised. What? Well, you know, with Harvey, what, what, what they tell you, uh, the people who worked for him for years, and I, I've done already about 150 interviews, but they tell you that, that, that we, we knew he cheated on his wife. Um, we didn't know he, he was sexually abusive to women. And now some people obviously knew he was sexually abusive to people. Some people who work with him, some people, uh, Quentin Tarantino has said he knew and he should have intervened at some point. So there are people who knew. And, and, and then the question becomes, those who knew, did they enable Harvey? Did they, in, in effect, encourage and normalize his abnormal behavior? And that's, that's a question I will address. Fantastic. Well, wh- and when will that come out, Ken? Do we know yet? 2021, yeah. I've got to finish by the fall. 
I know you've also been very active in helping young journalists, that you have worked with a lot of organizations there uh, to that end. Talk about, you know, our obligation as the sort of the senior delegation today to try to help that next generation of talent. Well, I mean, I think it is uh, what you want to do is, is you want to give back. And you do that, and 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 it's admirable to do that, and 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 also satisfying to do that. And so, I mean, one of the most satisfying moments I've had in that regard is is in the spring of 2017, a young reporter at MSNBC by the name of Ronan Farrow called me up and said he's doing a story on Harvey Weinstein, and could he talk? So he he talked to me at some length, and he said. You have your papers at the New York Public Library in your interviews. Could I look at look at them at the New York Public Library for my Harvey Weinstein story? So I thought he was a really impressive young man, smart, and asked good questions. He sounded like a journalist, not a not a zealot. And I gave him permission to look at my papers at the New York, and and listen to the tapes of my Harvey profile from 2002. And he called me up afterwards, and he said can I interview you? And I was then doing a book on advertising. I was out in Bridgehampton. And I said, you'll have to come out to Bridgehampton because I'm, I'm racing to finish a book. So he came out and he told me basically that he he cracked the case. He finally got women to talk. And, but, and, but, and NBC didn't, wouldn't allow him to publish what he had. So I, called up David Remnick, the editor of the New Yorker, and suggested this kid was really judicious. He was 29 years old. I mean, he's a Rhodes Scholar in his teen, teens. I'm an amazing young man. And lo and behold, he brings the stuff and does this brilliant reporting and exposes, as did the New York Times in October of 2017, exposes Harvey Weinstein. But that experience of, of watching this young man grow into this amazing figure who is, you know, he's, a, he's, a, he's one of the biggest named journalists in the world today, Ronan Farrow. And, and, and he's amazingly talented. That, that is, you know, you know, gives you a great pleasure. Fantastic. And tell me, I, you, I know you've been associated with The New Yorker forever. How did we go from being executive director of OTB to work to to being a political correspondent for the post and a columnist for the voice the daily news and then end up in this lofty position that you've held for so so long um with the new yorker well, well you know it's very funny i i was the reason i was uh, what happened with otb uh, where i was the executive director my first job out of graduate school where i studied as you said earlier political science I worked for this guy, Howard Samuels, a man, by the way, one of the heroic figures that we, we mentioned others. Uh, he was, to me, an heroic figure. He was the guy who invented baggies, and when, when he went to MIT as an engineer, he invented the plastic clothesline. So he was a very successful businessman because of that. And he had a company upstate, and he wanted to run for governor. And so I was hired as his travel aide, speechwriter, code holder. You know, I was a young kid uh, who, who basically wanted to get out of the PhD program. I, I was bored. And he was my first job. And he, what he did, he lost. And then he, he was the first Democrat to endorse John Lindsay, who was running for re-election as mayor of New York 
1969. And he was running against a Democrat by the name of Mario Procaccino. And Samuels headed Democrats for Lindsay. Lindsay wins re-election and then turns to Samuels and says, we're starting the first off-track betting corporation in the, in the country. Would you, would you run it? So Samuels, for a dollar a year, he's a very brilliant businessman. He starts OTB in New York. He was called Howie the Horse. That became his moniker. And I was the executive director, but, you know, for that. And then I was there for three years, and then I left to plot his campaign for governor in 1974 as his campaign manager. And with my help, he lost. And so I then was out of a job and I always wanted to go back to journalism. I'd done some journalism, including after Bobby Kennedy was killed. And so that's when I became, I wrote for the Daily News. I'm sorry, I wrote first for the New York Post. Then I left the Post and became a columnist. I I went to New York Magazine and The Voice. And then I became, after Murdoch took over in a hostile takeover of New York Magazine, and a number of us went on strike rather than work for him. So I quit. And then this was 1977. So the question becomes, what do I do? The news offered me a column once a week, which I took. I was doing, I also took a, a weekly show on WNET, public television. And Mr. Sean, William Sean, the editor of The New Yorker, called me up. I'll never forget it. I came back from lunch, and there was a message on my machine, and it said, Hello, Mr. Oletta. He talked like Peter Lorre. He said, Hello, Mr. Oletta. He said, This is William Sean, S-H-A-W-N. He spelled his name out. And he was this iconic figure. So that's when I started writing for The New Yorker. Fantastic. And do you have any sense at all after the Harvey Weinstein book, what do you have any inkling as to what you'd like to do after that project or it's one at a time? One at a time. One at a time. I, I haven't, you don't even think about that. What you want to do, if you're going to devote yourself to a book, it's really a marriage and you want to be sure you're in love. And, and so you have to really love the subject. And I, you, you can't think about this. I'm, I'm still in love with the subject I'm doing now. And, and I, I don't mean I'm in love with Harvey Weinstein. I mean, I, I'm in love with the project. And so that's you know what you do. And then at some point, you think about what's next. And you make sure you don't impulsively make a decision because it's really a three-year project. Right, right. And when just... To, just to give us a little glimpse into the process, do you sort of frame out the entire book start to finish on the front end, or how does that process no. actually work? What you do is you you start interviewing people, and you you start creating an index after each of the interviews. You read a lot, and so I've got on the Weinstein thing. I've got I'm on like my probably my twentieth notebook. Mm-hmm. And I've got, you know, as I said, 150 interviews or so, and I've got 2,000 documents, not mention, not to mention books. And what you do is you create an index. Every time you do an interview, you, you, you put things. I mean, you may have a section, Harvey's Youth, or in Queens, or Harvey at Buffalo, or, right. or Harvey starts Miramax, or Harvey's mother, or Harvey's father, or Harvey's brother, or, you know, whatever you have. And you put, and you talk to various people, and you put, what they say in a headline and, and what, you know, notebook, notebook F, I alphabetize my notebooks, page 54, you know, 
And so then you have this index, which in, in this case right now, my index is about 600 pages, single spaced. And what you do is you start looking at it and you start moving things around like a deck of cards and you say, I want to create a narrative out of this. So where, where do I begin? What's the opening? Mm-hmm. And where do you go from there? And I've done that already. I mean, so where I've moved things in the index around and then create chapters, but but all the while trying to figure out what's my narrative, what's the story I'm telling, and the questions I'm posing, and that's that's the process. So now I'm, you know, I mean, I've already written about fourteen chapters, and <clears throat> but you, you know, you work off that index and write off that. Fantastic. Well, we'll all look forward to that. And you are always so gracious. And uh, uh, I'm such a great admirer of your work. And when I asked you uh, to join us here on Great Minds, I I was so grateful that you were able to do it. Of course, in the age of Corona, we're doing it, you know, via Skype versus in person. But when this calms down, I look forward to one of our catch up breakfasts. Look forward to it, Matt. Thank you. Thank you, Ken. It's been my pleasure. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. Thank you very much for listening. And for more content just like this, visit AdvertisingWeek360.com. Production on this episode was by Jack Hirschman and Brendan Porter. And original music was by Ian Levy. 